When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey folks, your host here, Earl Breon. Uh, I'm not going to say much about this episode build up because uh, this one did run a little on the long side, but I will encourage you to stick with us. Uh, I think every second of this is extremely valuable, uh, especially if you are a veteran entrepreneur or a first responder entrepreneur. Uh, you're particularly going to find the tail end of this uh, podcast very helpful uh, with some of the things that our guest, Mark Deluzio, has to offer for you. Uh, I will take this moment here just to ask that uh, you take some time. Please subscribe, uh, rate, and review the show. It really does help us uh, gain traction uh, the way the algorithms work on all the different uh, platforms that are out there. The more of that stuff we get, the more visibility we get, the farther these messages of these great guests get spread. That's it. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. My name is Earl Brian. I'll be your host. Uh, today's guest, Mark Deluzio, is known as a pioneer of Lean and the principal architect of Danaher Business Systems. Mark serves as a trusted advisor and senior leader in global organizations whose financial and operational metrics have flatlined. While many know Lean in theory, Deluzio has lived it inside and out in practice. Mark became the vice president of Danaher Business Systems when he led its global deployment and enlightened Wall Street on its merits. He engaged in their first study mission to Japan to learn from Toyota and its suppliers, and he's still mentored by the masters of the Toyota production system today. Fundamental in Danaher's recognition as one of the leading implementers of Lean, Mark founded Lean Horizons Consulting in 2001 to helm a global team that serves clients on five continents in both specific and broad business applications of Lean. In 2007, Deluzio's excellence manufacturing contrib uh, contributions were recognized when he was inducted as a life member of the Shingo Academy, the Hall of Fame for Lean Leaders. Whether through speaking, authoring, or service on corporate and nonprofit boards, Deluzio's passion for educating others is evident, and he spent eight years on the board of his alma mater School of Business institutions like MIT's Sloan School of Management, Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, and Rochester Institute of Technology have invited him to speak with students about his DBS and lean experiences. He currently resides with his wife, Diane, in Buckeye, Arizona. Mark, 
that's a, a pretty uh, pretty impressive career you, you've had there. So I uh, appreciate you taking the time and joining us on the show today. Earl, thanks a lot. Yeah, listening to that uh, intro, I'm almost impressed with myself, for crying out loud. <laughs> well, you should be. And, and, uh, uh, <laughs> I said almost. <laughs> almost. Well, I'll be impressed for you. How does that okay, sound? Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm very interested because, you know, as, as a Marine, I spent uh, a year in, in Okinawa. So I'm sure we'll talk about Japan a little bit through the course of this. But uh, sure. before we, uh, you know, before we get too far down the road, I want to start you off where I start off all my guests with, what does the phrase "burden of command" mean to you? Well, look, I I know that's the name of your your podcast, and I think it's a good one um, uh, in, in a lot of respects. <clears throat> but when I look at the word "command," it almost uh, denotes a a kind of uh, command and control type of uh, leadership style. And uh, I, don't, I don't view leadership that way, quite frankly, Earl. I, I look at leadership as more of a servitude type of thing where a leader has to serve uh, the people that they, they, they lead and, and manage. And, and there's an interesting notion that I learned from the Japanese. Quite, uh, you know, the, old, the old traditional style was, hey, I'm going to tell you what to do and you go do it and uh, make sure you do it right and make sure it's on time and, and all that. And the leadership that I learned from Toyota and from the Respect for People uh, principle, which maybe we could talk about a little bit later, is that leadership is more like, you know, let's do this together. It's not even follow me, okay? It's let's all do this together and figure this out, right? Now, it doesn't mean you don't delegate and you don't hold people accountable and anything like that, but it's more of a you know, a collaborative type of uh, effort where if you're the only guy managing 15 people that comes up with all ideas, well, you're one sixteenth as effective than if you, you know, if you worked on soliciting ideas from, from, from your people, right? So I really believe that the burden of command is the number one responsibility of leadership, which quite frankly is to make sure you develop your people, you advance them in their careers, all while doing that, you are obviously, you know, contributing towards the objectives of whatever organization that you're, you're running. So, so I really do think you have to have a, a vision and a common purpose that everybody is working towards. If, if, if you're just working for me as a, as, as a, let's say a vice president, because you know I'm going to get a great bonus if we hit our numbers. But that's your sole purpose. And there's nothing really, you know, meaningful for you in terms of a win-win type of proposition. Then it's not going to last. It might last for a little while, but it, it just won't be sustainable. And that's when you start seeing a lot of turnover uh, and things like that. But if your employees, you know, if the people that you're, you're, you're working with really know you care about them and you're trying to help them advance their career, that's a real key in that, you know. So they should come first. You should serve them rather than them serving you. And I'll just go back. And I know you're you're a marine. You're a marine. I won't even say you're an ex-marine because marines aren't ex. They're always marines. Uh, <laughs> marines, you know this darn well better than I do. And I'm not a military. I'm you know I'm not a I'm not a military. I'm not a veteran. But I do know that commanders eat last, mm-hmm. right? Their people eat first. So. 
So that's my view on leadership. You know, it's, 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 it doesn't mean you're not accountable. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be, you know, holding people to performance and everything else, but it does mean that you're trying to, you know, elicit, put it this way, it's got to be a win-win for everybody, not just the leader. Oh, 100%. And, and, you know, I knew we'd get into the Japanese connection there sooner or later. I didn't expect right off the bat. But, <laughs> I mean, what I love about that, and this is, you know, podcast I did in, in the first season of the show, uh, I'm sure probably in your time in Japan, on more than one occasion, you've, you've heard the Book of Five Rings referenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and I did one on the whole, uh, the way of, of the foreman carpenter, and he says the same exact thing. Uh, Miyamoto Masashi says the exact same thing about uh, the, the foreman carpenter has a responsibility of knowing how to use all of his materials, the, the strong, sturdy woods to be used for support, the, uh, the kind of knotty, uh, gangly-looking can be used for shims and, and to uh, keep the fire going or made into tools. And, and you know, just it, it's what you just said. It's about knowing everybody on your team and how to use them most effectively and get the most out of them. Um, so, no, I, I love that answer, and, and, and I always love, especially uh, especially people like yourself who, uh, you know, you're, and I'm sure we'll get into this too, but you're, you may not be a veteran, but you have uh, children who have served, and, and uh, you know, I love to hear people who at least have a familiarity kind of come to grips with how the, the, that phrase sounds and what it means, because uh, this whole reason I picked it, it conjures up all these different images and interpretations for people based off their experiences. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love those answers. I, I I haven't met an answer to that question yet that I don't love. Uh, so thank you for sharing sharing that one. Oh, sure. No problem. Um, so before we go uh, another step further, I, I know that there are probably a lot of people on this podcast who have heard the term lean, but probably aren't very familiar with it. So like kind of if you were to do just a general lean introductory, what is lean and and why is it important to organizations? You know, it's interesting. If you go on LinkedIn and I've got thousands of connections, that question is still being argued about today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But in general, uh, you know, I I was fortunate enough – uh, Earl to to learn from the guys who actually invented it. Okay, <laughs> not from some consultant or for some third party or whatever. And uh, lean is actually an American term that was coined by in the book called Machine That Changed the World. And in that book that came out, I believe that came out in like the late eighties. Uh, Machine That Changed the World was a book uh, that com- compared and constra- contrasted uh, primarily Toyota with U.S. auto manufacturers and, and primarily, you know, General General Motors because they were the big dog at the time. Mm-hmm. And so they compared and contrasted the differences between them, how they thought, how they developed product, how they manufactured product, how they procured materials, all that stuff, right? But it was all based on not, so so the so so lean really is the American name for what we call the Toyota production system. Right. The Toyota production system is the essence of what Lean is all about. And that was developed by a guy named Teashi Ono. And I unfortunately did, you know, I got involved in this in 1987. My first trip to Japan was 1990. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Ono-san died in 1990. But his first lieutenants, the guys he handpicked to implement and develop the process are the guys that I worked with, okay? Mm. And they were my mentors. They're still my 
uh, mentors today. And uh, so we learned firsthand. We learned firsthand from the guys that, you know, that, 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 that developed it. And if I were to kind of capitalize what, what this is all about, in a real simple layman's term, it's about taking out waste, okay? And when you take out waste, safety gets better, quality gets better, your on-time delivery and lead times get better, and of course, ultimately, your costs get better, right? So safety, quality, delivery, and cost. And examples of waste are things like motion, walk time, transportation, okay? If I'm walking, uh, we had one lady one time that we, we calculated in the in, in, in an annual on an annual basis. She was walking from her plant from San San Jose, California, all the way to St. Louis on an annual basis. Mm. Okay, that's how much walk time she was she had, which is all non-value added. Nothing happens to uh, to uh, the product or the service or the delivery. Or, you know, if you if you're doing a lot of walking, there's 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 defects. There's Waste from excess inventory, excess processing that you don't need to do. Uh, there's like seven classic waste that Ono comes up with. And so the whole idea here is to take those waste out. Now, Lean has a lot of tools, all kinds of different tools to help you take out that waste. But it's guided by an overriding philosophy, okay? And that philosophy is focused on respect for people, which is basically making sure that the goals and objectives of all your stakeholders are met. So this kind of ties back a little bit to your burden of command question, right? Because not only are you trying to, uh, you know, optimize your shareholder return, but you also want to make sure that your employees' goals are met, your customers' goals are met, uh, even stakeholders like society, the environment. And uh, believe it or not, Toyota, and they're the only ones that I've ever seen do this. There may be others, but they also want to show respect for their competition, Okay, so there's overriding philosophies. There's another philosophy within the Toyota production system that's called just-in-time, which basically means I'm only going to make it when I need it and only when I need it in the quantity that I need. I'm not going to make 50 when I only have orders for 20, okay. okay, because that extra 30 is inventory. It ties up cash. It's no, no, no different than why you would not go to a grocery store and buy one year's worth of product of, of goods, right? Right. And I don't have to sit here and tell you why that would be a bad idea for you. There's like four or five key reasons why. So so it's all about minimizing, but it's not – one thing it is not, and I will tell you this, Earl, it is not about reducing headcount and firing people and laying them off, okay? The worst thing that you could do is ask somebody for their improvements, which is a really hallmark of leaning through a process we call Kaizen. Mm-hmm. Kaizen means continuous improvement, and you ask – you know, an employee, an operator, whatever, for their ideas as to how to improve their work. Because, by the way, they're the best consultants in the world, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then say, oh, hey, Charlie, really great. Well, this area that you worked in that had 10 guys, we only need four. So we're going to have to let you go. Right. That's the last time you make improvements. Okay. So that's disrespectful, too, by the way. You don't do that. What you do is you use your newfound capability in terms of productivity, shorter lead times, better quality, to grow your business. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole hallmark of lean. A lot of people, a lot of CEOs miss that, okay? They miss the fact that they can leverage that in and and actually, you know, grow their business. And even in a commodity product, you can have a sustainable competitive advantage if you are better with quality, better with lead time, delivery, the whole thing. 
I just I just ordered two brand new office chairs for, for my office here, my wife and I. And I got a note that says they're going to be, initially they told us they're going to be shipped in July. And by the way, this is a very reputable, you'd know the name if I told you who it was. Then I got an email that says, oh, we're not going to get it till August. I canceled the order. Mm. And just last week, on Friday, I ordered uh, two comparable office chairs, and I'm sitting in them right now, okay? Mm-hmm. So they won on lead time, okay? And a chair is a commodity. I mean, I know chairs are different. I know there's different features and stuff like that. But yeah, at the end of the day, a chair is a chair, right? Right. And, uh, and so I am sitting in that chair right now, okay? And uh, the other order, gone. They lost it, okay? So- Anyway, I'll stop there, but that's that's the as I give you a long-winded answer here, but it, it, it's a it's a philosophical look at things. There's a lot of principles involved, backed up by really hardcore tools that allow you to do the things that you say from a principle perspective you want to do. So yeah, no, I mean I love that. I mean I love that that kind of crash course there because you you encompassed a lot and 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 uh, you know I, I I like what you said and and for me. You know, the thing was, what I like that you touched on and you expanded on was, was the Kaizen piece, because I'm a big fan of that continual improvement. And and if I understand right, that was really the big juxtaposition between uh, the Toyota system and the American system was from day one, the American auto manufacturing system was about the same. Everything had to be the same. Everything had to be, there, there was a process that had to be met to maximize the flow and any changes. You know, Henry Ford was kind of, infamous about being against making changes because of the disruption would cause to the manufacturing process and and retooling the line but Toyota really they kind of embrace that for the sake not just for the sake of change but for making things better right well yeah and 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 it's interesting that you say that because Henry Ford was a key influence to Tashi Ono mm-hmm. so Ono saw the moving production line because you know up till then uh Earl, an automobile was made this way. The chassis sat in the middle of the floor, and all the tools had to come to it, all the labor had to come to it, all the materials had to be brought to that one spot, right? right. So what Henry Ford did is, hey, let's put this on a moving line. He puts it on a moving production line where if you're assembling the door, the door is in one spot on the line, and that's the only place I have to bring the door. And then when that car comes by at that point, I put the door on, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's the general principle. What Ono did... He saw the moving production line, but then he came back and said, well, wait a minute, Henry Ford isn't doing it for his engines, for his transmissions, for his chest, you know. So he took the concept and evolved it to all production within Toyota. So all the components, like I said, the engine, the, you know, the transmission, everything got done in the same fashion along some semblance of a line uh, or what we call a cell. Okay, so, so there's cellular manufacturing. There's some different techniques that you use. But anyway, he developed that. The other thing he did, and, and, and see, the Japanese are really great because American mentality does not want to learn because they're so arrogant. When you, when you work for a company that's the number one automobile company in the world, nobody's going to tell you that, you know, the emperor has no clothes on, right? Right. And this is part of leadership, by the way. Again, I still want to go back to your burden of command uh uh, philosophy, because if you're not open to change, okay, you're not going to change, right? right? And, and so so what happened was Ono, for example, uh, went to a, 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 a supermarket called Piggly Wiggly, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you have those down there where you are, but uh, down south they have them. I know that. Yep, I grew up fact, in Northeast Tennessee, so yep, familiar. Matter of fact, that's where we found ice cream for my son when he graduated uh, Fort Benning uh, Boot Camp. <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> find it anywhere else. Uh, so Piggly Wiggly, right? But they were one of the they were the first supermarket to put stuff on shelves. Like up till then, you would go into a supermarket, go to a counter, and tell the guy, "Hey, I need flour, I need bread, I need butter." You know, he go and back and get it. He bring it out and he give it to you, right? Right. Well, they put them on shelves. Okay. So now what happens is you walk into a supermarket, just like today, and you pull a can of beans off the shelf, and guess what? Sooner or later, a clerk comes by and fills that shelf up with more beans, right? Mm-hmm. And that's called the supermarket, and that gave way to the Kanban system. And the Kanban is a uh, basically means sign, sign card or, or sign board, but it's a visual management system in terms of, hey, look, I'm not going to make product. If I'm going to hold 10... And there's always ways to calculate this, but at my machine, that's all. I'm not going to produce another part because I'll violate just in time until you came. If you come and take two, I'm going to make two more. Okay. And that's how you control inventory, lead time. Because what ends up happening is if I make 50 and push them down your throat and they're all red and then all of a sudden I get orders for blue, guess what? I got excess inventory, excess cash, and that's a form of waste. Okay, so you see how it all works. So, so, and there are other avenues that Ono and and not only Ono but other Toyota me- uh, 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 leaders took from real life situations and incorporated them into uh, what we now you know call the Toyota production system. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's very interesting. And uh, so, in the intro, mentioned that you were an author. And you've got a book out, uh, Flatlined, Why Lean Transformations Fail and What to Do About It. Right. So if if this system is as great as it is, and trust me, I believe you that it is because I've seen places that have done it fantastically. So this is a little kind of tongue-in-cheek question. If it is as great as it is, why do organizations that try it, why do they still flatline? Well, you know, it's interesting. I get asked that a lot and. My my first knee-jerk reaction to that question is, what things do you know in life that are really worth it, that are easy? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and uh, you just think about life in general, right? You know, I mean, the fact that I, I, I've been married for 40 years, uh, you think that was a cakewalk, you know? It was for me, but I mean, for my wife, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm halfway there. We just celebrated 20 years ourselves, and, and you know, and, and, and you have to work at it. Right. Okay, it's not easy. It's worth it, but it's not raising kids. Same thing, right? So, there's nothing in this world I don't believe. I mean, sometimes you might win the lottery, you might get lucky, but you know, overall. So, so, so basically, most of the people who start this Earl want the results. They don't want to do the work to get it. Okay, mm-hmm. and they do think, in a lot of regards, and this is kind of my phrase I use with a CEO that calls me who wants to start this. That first they say, you know, hey, we want to do the Dan or her business system. And I say, well, you can't because you're not Dan or her. That was their system that I developed with other people that works for them. Now there are tenets of that system, just like with Toyota, that you could take and create your own system. But every business is different, and your cultures are different, and you have to kind of you know mold that in, right? But I tell them, look, it's not like, you know, a refrigerator. Like you go down to Home Depot and you buy a refrigerator, you bring it home, you plug it in, and 30 minutes later you have cold drinks. It doesn't work that way, okay? <laughs> and and um, 
And a lot of a lot of people think it is. Now, one of the major reasons why, so I call the book Flatlined because that is the, the word that most CEOs use when they call me to say, hey, Mark, we've been doing lean for 10 years, but our numbers are just flatlined, okay? And I've been doing this now for over 30 years. Actually, uh, well, 33 years. <laughs> and, uh, and in my consulting business for nearly 20, and I've seen all kinds of businesses, all kinds of businesses, okay? I've seen pharmaceutical, logging. Fra- I've been out to fracking mines doing this, okay? Mm. Uh, uh, all kinds of different industrial, aerospace, automotive, you know, you name it. I pretty much saw most of it out- that's out there. And uh, hospitals, too. And don't get me going on the medical community. Um, but um, but I, uh, but they say, hey, look, you know, you know we flatlined and uh, we... Uh, we don't know why we flatlined. Well, there are so after a while, regardless of the industry, there there have been common things that I've observed over the course of all the years I've been doing this, and so I wrote about that. That's what this book is about. Okay, so I don't care what industry you're in. Uh, everybody, first of all, everybody thinks they're different, and in some regards they really are, but in another regard, because they all think they're different, they're the same. Okay, and right. and the first notion you have to get over is that you know. If you get a lot of times when somebody tells you they're different, they're basically sending you a signal that says, "This doesn't apply to us." You know, I had a CEO the other day I've been working with for I don't know eighteen months, and he's just not listening. He's just not listening. And I've seen these movies before, you know, and uh, I'm trying to help him. And he said to me, he said, "You know, Mark." You just don't understand the details of our business. And I responded by saying, well, look, uh, John, uh, I said, uh, I've been looking at your numbers over the last two years, and your top line and bottom line have been going down rapidly, and you're not listening to me. Let me suggest that I'm not the only one that doesn't understand the details of your business. Okay? (laughs) Okay? Right. Okay. So... You know, sooner or later, I got to make a call as to whether or not I'm going to be able to continue to work because, hey, look, I make a lot of money doing this, right? right? But it's not for the money. I don't need to do this, okay? I want to do this because I made a commitment to my mentors that I would take Ono's, Tashi Ono's vision and propagate it all the way through as much as I can. I spend a lot of time for free with young, young kids on LinkedIn, young engineers and young business executives, just two hours at a time talking to them, you know? Right. And I don't bill them or anything like that, you know? And I really have a commitment and passion to pass down the purity of what Ono was talking about, okay? But it's been decimated out there with the consulting industry because the consulting industry has made it a mess, right? So this flatline book is really more about the four or five key things that I have seen as common, common errors that everybody's going to make. You know, everybody says lean is common sense and, and all that. It's very counterintuitive, Right. And uh, the problem is that a lot of these leaders have gotten to high levels in the organization with traditional management. So in a lot of regards, it's very hard sometimes to convince them that what got them their success is no longer valid, okay? Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the, the, uh, the, the concept of Kaizen. If you truly believe that there's always a better way, then you'll be okay. But most people will talk that talk, but they won't walk the walk. They don't really believe 
that they can improve or you know a lot in a lot of cases they they think they've arrived you know yeah and uh so anyway i'll stop there but you know this book is really about the the four or five like i said key things that that are preventing these organizations from advancing uh to the to, to where they want to take it so yeah no i mean you you said uh you said a lot there i mean you know, you talked about the work part. One of my favorite, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a gentleman named uh, Ronnie Coleman. Uh, he was a seven-time Mr. Olympia. And uh, he, he was he was famous for his, his phrases. But what he would say all the time was, you know, everybody wants to be a bodybuilder, but nobody wants to lift those heavy-ass weights. Exactly. And and you talked about people wanting to, to take the, the Danaher system and make it their own. You know, I run into that a lot We're working with leaders where they're like, you know, uh, I'll use John Maxwell because he's probably the most widely known. It's like, I've read all the John Maxwell books. I do what John Maxwell to say, uh, says to do in there, but it doesn't work. And I've got to convince him it's because you're not John Maxwell. You know, those are <laughs> guidelines. You have to take John Maxwell and figure out how those principles work for you so they're authentic, so people want to follow you. Um, but uh, the, the last piece that you said there was um, – I think another thing, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it it seems like when it comes to change, a lot of people get stuck that change has to be something Herculean, and it doesn't. It, it can be very small, very minimal, but lead to big savings over time, right? Well, you're exactly right. And that, that, by the way, Earl, that, that is the whole essence of Kaizen. Okay, right. it's continuous, small continuous. It's a rabbit in the hair, you know, story. Remember that, and mm-hmm. and uh, and it is a small, and that was the thing because Americans were geared, especially back, you know, when Toyota they were competing against Toyota, and 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 GM was the the big dog. They were looking for her, you know, big breakthroughs, and Toyota was just the. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take two seconds out of that process today. Mm-hmm. And next week, I'm going to work on the next two seconds, right? And and before you know it, you know, two seconds a week times, you know, 50 weeks, all of a sudden, they're the beating of the market, okay? Right. And, and so um, so that that is exactly what the Kaizen uh, philosophy is. And it's funny that you you talked about weight, weight training because Kaizen, uh, Earl, is also used as an event. Like, like let's say... You got a team of five, six, seven, eight people, and you have a specific area that you're going to go after to improve. It could be a manufacturing line, it could be an administrative process, whatever, a warehouse, whatever. And you pick the tools that you're going to use within the lean tool bag to go and implement. So there's a little bit of training involved, and you hands-on implement and get the results like that that week, right? Right. That's called a Kaizen event. So I'll go into some companies, especially the ones that say they flatlined, and I'll say to them. Uh, how many Kaizens do you guys do a year? And I'll say, oh, we do one a quarter. Oh, really? One a quarter. And you're doing lean, right? Yeah. Uh, well, and I use bodybuilding. I say, okay, so that's like somebody who wants to aspire to be Mr. Universe, and they go to the gym once a quarter. <laughs> yep. That's what you're doing, guys. Right. Okay? That's what you're doing. Okay? All the other stuff that you're doing is is fake lean. You could put as many yellow lines on the floor, hang, hang all the poster boards and all the slogans. They mean nothing, okay? Mm-hmm. They mean nothing. 
As a matter of fact, when you put up a slogan and then you don't follow it, you know how much credibility you lose with your people? You know, yes. again, I want to go back to your burden of command, right? And 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 so, you know, it's like, what do you do? do the, one of the, so one of the things I have in my book is is default to the basics, mm-hmm. okay? They're not sexy. In a lot of regards, sometimes they're hard. But we miss the basics. So many of those basics that I talk about in that book, nobody's doing. But they say they're doing lean. Right. So so it, it, it drives me nuts when I see that because there's so many, you know, misguided, you know, I don't know, you want to call it leadership yeah. out there, uh, that are trying to do this. And and you know, you cannot become Mr. Universe when you go to the gym once a quarter. This yeah. is not gonna work. I'm sorry. No, you're you know. Yeah, you're right. I mean I think um, and I'm sure you probably have some better ones, but just kind of visualize for, for the listeners, you know, one of the the, the to me, the, the 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 biggest Kaizen victory story I think I've read, it was, and it's so simple, it was about a screwdriver. And uh, the way the story goes is like uh, a Toyota was, uh, they were just starting to put computers in, in the cars, and uh, they had an assembly line where the uh, components were being assembled, and they had the little, uh, the name escapes me now, the little finesse screwdrivers, the little tiny ones, Mm-hmm. And it started out in a in a tray, and every time a new part would come through, somebody would have to go and pick up the screwdriver, bring it over, tighten the screws, put it back in the tray, next component. And then somebody got the idea of, well, hey, we can put that screwdriver uh, essentially on a pulley system so it's like hanging here so we don't have to reach in the bin and get it. We can pull it down, do it, tighten the screw, and then when we let go, the pulley will take it back, and it's always going to be in the same spot. And then later on, somebody was like, well, you know, now that screwdriver, when I let it go, it's dangling. So it's not always necessarily in the same spot. So then they decided to attach basically like a bungee to it. So when it would come up, it wouldn't swing. It would stabilize in one spot. And each one of those things shaved literally seconds, maybe even uh, fractions of seconds off of the process. But when you're doing that process 20,000 times a year, that's a ton of time saved, right? You didn't realize you were a lean guy, did you? <laughs> well, not officially, but yeah, I've, I've I've always been fascinated. Do you know? You know, the first time I saw that was in in Japan on an aircraft engine line. Believe it or mm-hmm. not, that that concept, as simple as it is, was being used on an air, making an aircraft engine. Okay, mm-hmm. for a I don't know what it was seven forty seven or something like that, whatever it was, right? And uh, that's perfect, John. I mean, Earl, that's perfect. I mean, that's, uh, you know, uh, those are the kind of... Now, let me take that to the next level. Okay. And this is the way Toyota would think about it, okay? Just to give you an idea of continuous improvement. Why do I have to screw it in at all? Okay? Why do you even, why do you even have that step? Because, you know, one of the mistakes a lot of people make is they try to improve something but don't think about how they can eliminate it altogether. So, so they try mm. to optimize something that maybe was suboptimal to begin with, right? Mm. If you think about a screw, the only time that screw adds value is on the last turn. All the other times that screw's being screwed into the hole, it does nothing. It doesn't fasten. It doesn't hold anything. So, yeah, you can shorten the screw up, but you still got to turn it in somehow to hold, you know, to hold the part, whatever it is, and. So now the now the now the Kaizen philosophy says, wait a minute, why do I have a process here where I have to actually, you know, 
do all that turning, whether I do it manually or not, doesn't matter. And it's only that last thread that holds the part. Okay. Mm. So how can I re-engineer this so I don't have a screw? You know, we have, we have a saying when we do changeover on fixtures, bolts are our enemy. We don't want bolts. We want quick, quick clamps, quick fasteners, that type of thing, you know? So, so th that's just an example of how you take something that is a great idea with the screwdriver, but then you say, wait a minute, you know, how do we get rid of that? You know, cause th that doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. So that's just an example of the, of the, uh, of the Kaizen philosophy in action, if you will. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Well, so, um, you know, and again, let me, let me mention the book here again, because I really want people to, to pick this up. Flatlined, Why Lean Transformations Fail and What to Do About It. Um, and, and I'll have a link to it on, on the show notes for this, so you can go directly and, and, and get a copy. But, um, you know. It, Thank you. It sounds oh, very welcome, very very welcome. Um, but you know, th this is the thing that always gets me. It's like it, it sounds great. It is great when it's put into practice. Why do organizations have such a hard time coming to grips with these concepts? And like you said, kind of yep. getting stuck in doing what they've always done. They may, they may excel. <clears throat> In what I call point kaizen, like like the example that I just gave you right now with uh, the you know or you gave I should say with the with the screwdriver and all that. In most cases, they do okay in that kind of stuff, but where they fail, there's there's two major reasons, and there's, I, I've got five, but there's two major reasons why they fail. One is, or well, I've already talked about you know not adhering to the basics. That's one thing, right? Or, and looking for that quick win, right? They're looking for that refrigerator to plug in. And then tomorrow they want, in half an hour they want cold drinks. It doesn't work that way. But, but the other one, the biggest one is what I call lack of respect for people. Okay. Now, if you go, if you go to the Toyota website, you'll see, uh, the Toyota in 2001, Toyota came up with the respect for people concept. And, uh, it's, it's inadequately named in my opinion, because I really, I really wish they would have named it, uh, respect for humanity. Okay. Because when people think about respect for people, they automatically default to the employee. And it's not just about that. Like I said earlier, it's, it is about shareholder. It is about the customer. It is about the employee. And I, I wrote a paper called the Lean Trilogy that says all three of those cannot be a zero sum game. They all must win, right? Mm -hmm. They all must win. Whatever their objectives are, they must win. So if you, if you, and, and there are going to be day to day decisions that you make that maybe will compromise one group versus another. Like for example, if I give employees a raise, that may take away from earnings per share and reduce my stock price, okay? Or, you know, I could easily go to a customer and say, hey, I'm going to reduce your, your, your price by 50%. But then what happens? I have to shut down plants and I have to lay people off and I go out of business, right? And that, it's a shareholder too. So, so there's always going to be those intermittent decisions you make. But as you step back and look at the whole picture, is everybody winning, okay? And it's not only about money, by the way. Okay, so is everybody winning? And if they are winning, then you're doing the right thing, right? And, and by the way, my trilogy talks about employees, customers, and shareholders, but I, I am not, you know, uh, ignoring the fact that there are other stakeholders too. Suppliers right. is a stakeholder. Uh, a society, the environment, that type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. so, so anyway, um, <clears throat> I mean, you can argue, uh, you know, veterans are a stakeholder, right? I mean... That could be a, a sub stakeholder that your organization is really trying to you know, to foster, you know. Right. So, 
So when you look at that, okay, lack of respect for people is the biggest issue, okay? Now, leaders talk a really good game in that department, okay? The biggest problem I've seen with leadership that don't do a good job in that department is they don't know they're not doing a good job in that department. They're oblivious Mm. to the fact that they're disrespecting their people, okay? And that's the problem. Okay, and there's a, there's this maniacal focus on profits, and 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 by the way, I am not against profits, more the merrier. Okay, but you have to look at the whole picture. So so one of the things that we talk about, I, I alluded to earlier, uh, Earl was, you know, the notion of safety, quality, delivery, and cost in that order. Okay, safety always comes first. I don't care. What the customer wants, I don't care what the shareholder wants, okay? I don't care about lead time. I don't care about quality. If I'm going to make a non-safe environment for my employees, that's a non-starter, okay? By the way, we lose 2.7 million people a year to workplace accidents on this globe. Mm. 2.7 million. Everybody's worried about the virus, okay? Nobody's talking about that. Right. And uh, and so, um, and that's per year, by the way. Uh so, so you've got safety, quality, delivery, and cost. Now, I am not going to ship a bad product to make a delivery commitment if it's bad quality. That's why quality is higher on the on the hierarchy, right? On the total pole. Right. And if I'm going to be late on a on a shipment, I am going to airship it at my cost to get it to the customer, so I make it there on time at the expense of cost. So you see how cost is last, right? Mm-hmm. What happens is a lot of CEOs talk that game. But they really run their business by not SQDC. They run it by cost, 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 CC, CC, okay? Yep. And a very good example that this last this virus has surfaced is that 97% of our antibiotics are made in China. Why are they made there? Because of cost. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, for a lean thinker like me, it's counterintuitive, ludicrous, that you would move your manufacturing 8,000 miles away from your customer base. Mind-boggling that you would do that. And every time a CEO has asked me to do a calculation and an analysis of moving to China, I always would come back and say, don't do it. They would do it anyway. And the cost associated, all they're looking at is labor costs. They're not looking at all the other costs. They're not looking at the fact that it takes six weeks to get here on a boat. And if you ordered purple, and halfway through, you decide you want pink. Guess what? You know, your lead time goes. Customers get upset. They move their business to somebody else, mm. right? So, uh, not counting it costs twenty thousand dollars a year just to send somebody over there. So you send all these executives over to check in on these plants, and they usually go over and add no value at all. They just interfere with everything, and uh, that's a cost they don't calculate. There's all kinds of transportation, fully loaded cost, uh, you know, landed cost, I should say. They don't look at. It's never profitable to go there. But in this case, if 97% of our, our products are made in China, of our antibiotics, if China shut us down, this virus would look like a skin knee compared to how many people would die if we didn't get antibiotics. First of all, we do 40,000 uh, uh, organ transplants a year. That would come to a halt. Those right. people no, most likely would die. Okay, We do... Uh, uh, three out of 10 people who get pneumonia would die. 
five out of every thousand childbirths, the mothers would die. And that's just mm. for starters, okay, if we didn't have antibiotics here in this country. Uh, so 97%, and, and then there's other medical equipment, there's other drugs, there's other things that, I'm just using antibiotics because it's such a, you know, understandable one. So, you know, in that regard, and I'm not a big government guy that says, hey, let's put a lot of regulation in, but that to me, you know, to me, the number one reason for a government, and you should know, you definitely know this because you're you're a Marine, is to protect its citizens, right? And and I, I do favor regulation. I said, you can't make that crap over there. I'm sorry, okay? Just like we can't make weapons for the military offshore, okay? Uh, it's the same idea, okay? But, not, but, but here's a case where it's a huge disrespect for people, in my opinion, when CEOs look at cost and not look at the safety factor for their potential uh, uh, customers, okay, mm-hmm. by doing that. So it goes even higher than just your normal everyday safety procedures and workplace procedures and stuff like that. Yeah, that's important too. But the bigger picture, we have to take this philosophy to a higher level. And we have to basically instill that in the values that we say we have. Because most of the values that are on companies' websites, are, are they don't adhere to at all. Okay. So anyway, I'll stop there, but that's kind of my... Uh, no, I mean it's it's uh, you know you're you're hitting on all cylinders and uh, uh, especially you know everything you just said there. I mean it's 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 I'm a big fan of of the TV show Shark Tank because I I just I love to see what people come yep. up with and what problems are being solved. But I'm yep. with you. It, it, it my wife she she like looks at me every time they start talking about landed cost and and especially the people who are trying to make American-made products. And the first question one of the sharks asks is, well, you could, are, are you opposed to moving it to China? I'm like, stop asking that question, <laughs> you know? And it's like they're trying to talk people out of, out of avoiding some of these things. And, and I've got nothing against China. Uh, it, but it's, it's just, you know, like you said, the, the cost and the time associated in, in being held uh, – at, at, at the whim of the country, like you said, if they cut us off uh, shipments, how long would it take us to spin up the manufacturing capability to, to fill that 97% gap? It, it would be mind-boggling, right? Oh, it would, it would, it would, it would be a disaster. And, yeah. and, well, let me ask you a question. You live in Indianapolis. Why don't you do your grocery shopping in L.A.? Right, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it really, it, that's not like a, like a mark, you're being a smart guy, right? It's really no different. It really is no different. Of course, you're not going to do your grocery shopping in L.A. for all the obvious reasons, right? And and but that's what companies do all the time. And and I just shake my head. I just shake my head. And I walk away. And say I don't know. You know. You know. No. The other thing too, I'll, I'll, I'll say to you too. And again, this does go back to. I keep going back to your title, right? Your command of your your leadership and your command. Uh, so many companies, uh, Earl, have uh, value statements on yeah. their uh, websites, right? And they're usually the same stuff, right? It's honesty, integrity, teamwork, uh, customer first, uh, you know, people first, employees are our most valuable asset and all this stuff, right? So that's all good. But I got to a point in my career where I said, okay, enough of the crap, right? Enough of the BS. Um if you don't have a process to make sure that your values are instilled and, 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 and adhered to, 
then all it is is a slogan. And I, let me give you an example. I'm with a client and, you know, talking to them, and I said, okay, well, how many people here believe that the number one responsibility of leadership is to develop your people? Everybody raised their hand. Okay, how do you do it? And I got stares. Mm-hmm. Okay. You don't have a process? No. Uh, well, then why do you have that as a value? Well, because what we believe in it. Yeah, but you don't do it. <laughs> okay. And and so, you know, do you, I said, let me ask you guys. You're the top leadership here. I said, do you, how many people here have career plans, written com- career plans? Nobody. Yeah. Okay. So what are you working on to develop your career? What is your boss? Is your boss giving you 15% of your time to go and work on things that you need for your next role? No. You know, none of that going on. Another example would be, and this is one of the tenets, uh, Earl, of the uh, Toyota production system, is that you want to be able to solve problems at the lowest possible level in the organization. Highest necessary, but lowest level possible level in the organization, which usually means you want the operators involved in solving, you know, ground floor, you know, issues, right? Yes. Like that screwdriver example that you gave probably came from an operator, right? Right. All right. How many people believe that? Everybody raised their hand. Okay. Do you guys have a problem-solving process to teach your people? Well, we kind of have this book, but we don't, you know. When when was the last time you guys trained your employees on solving problems? Silence. Mm -hmm. How much time do you guys give your employees a week to work on problems? Silence. You guys provide engineering support and tool room support and, you know, technical support or maintenance or whatever, right? Silence. It's a slogan, guys. Okay? I'm glad you believe that problems should be solved at the lowest level, but it's just not going to happen because you don't have a process to enable the value that you say is so important to you. Okay? So, you see, again, cost comes in play again because, you know, they're going to look at that as a cost. Oh, I'm going to shut the production line. You know, mm. Hino Motors, which is one of my customers, it's owned by Toyota, and I and I and I and I and I uh, I, I, I uh, supplied them from from Connecticut. Uh, only only U.S. suppliers supply them. Uh, they would give their employees Friday afternoon to work on problems, and they would bring engineering support and you know, like I said, maintenance tool room, all that. And they train their employees as to how to use problem solving, right? And they would give them the whole afternoon on Friday afternoon. All they did is work on problems. Okay. That's walking the talk, okay? Yes. These values are slogans in most company, and they're BS. When they say they, when they say that they believe in diversity, and then you look at the comp- composition of their leadership team, you know. So, and, and by the way, I don't only mean diversity from gender or race. I mean it from you know, like for example, one company I looked at was an insurance company that said, uh, you know, we believe in the digital age. Nobody out of twenty eight people, two guys, two guys had digital experience. Okay, <laughs> we believe on diversity in experience. They were all financial guys. Right. Nobody worked in another industry. Okay, yeah. and so it's all BS. You know, most of the time you look at these values, and so so those are the real reasons why they fail. I mean, there's more specific tactical reasons why they fail, but you know, the respect for people, this whole business about your culture and your values and and all that. Those are the main, you know, th- there's other reasons like, you know, aligning everything you do towards strategy and making sure that everybody's working together, that the enterprise is working together, not just the functions. I don't want the best HR department or the best, you know, engineering department. I want the best enterprise. 
Right. In order for that, they all have to work together in concert to make it a best enterprise. You know, because I can have the best world-class engineering group, but if I don't have a good manufacturing group, it doesn't matter. You know, and they all have to work together in order to be the best. So, so that's another reason. There's a bunch of reasons, but you know, those are some of the highlights. I know oh. I'm very long-winded here, but I just want to. Kinda... No, this is good stuff, and and and. You know, I hope my listeners are, are taking all the all the good uh, tidbits out of this because I mean, you know, Mark's right. As somebody who's kind of been in, in those shoes, I, I I remember working with an organization once, and they were wanting to come up with a set of, of core values. And and my first question to them was, "What is it that you think you are creating?" And they said, "Well, a, a list of values." I said, "No, what you are creating is a contract with the people that work in this organization." that these are the minimum standards that you are going to be held to, including us. If you're not willing to make that commitment, let's just stop the exercise here and not waste time and wall space by putting empty words up. And they were all not, oh, that's, yeah, no, no, we're on it. We went through the process. <laughs> They're just sitting on the wall collecting dust. And, and it, it was sad and it was tragic and and what you just said is exactly what happened. The team, the 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 uh, employees got fired up because they they thought that this was going to be something great, and nothing was ever enforced. And morale that had went on this high note going through the exercise tanked well below where it was before the exercise went because essentially what happened was their leaders lied to them about what was going to be expected. And nobody wants to work for a liar. Uh, it's just that simple. Employers will figure it out so fast, you know. Oh, yeah. And you know, everybody says, you know, well, why, why isn't Toyota unionized? They don't you need to, to be. Why? The employees don't want to be unionized, right? You know, because they don't do what you just said. You know, uh, you know. I mean, the, the fastest way to get a union, and again, I don't want to get into the union is good, union is bad, right. but, but. The fastest way to get a union is do exactly what you just said. Lie to your people. You know, put a bunch of values out there and then act a different way. Yep. That That is like the, a surefire way to kill morale and just alienate everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, because cause most, most leaders look at all that stuff that you just mentioned as a waste of time. They're going to do it because it's politically correct, okay? But they look at it as a waste of time. Yep. And that's the problem because most leaders get to their positions, Earl, because of their technical competence, not because they're great people, people or great leaders or have great EQ. Matter of fact, there's a study that says that the higher somebody goes in an organization, the higher the, e the IQ of that person, but the lower the EQ is. Right. Okay. So it's an inverse relationship between EQ and IQ as you raise in the organization. And that's, and that's the problem because, you know, the EQ side of it, to me, is more valuable the higher you go in a company. But it's usually not that way. You know, you look at the big oil companies. They're all oil guys, okay? You look at the big uh, technology companies. They're all engineers, right? Yeah. Um, there's a book out called The Outsiders by a guy named Will Thorndike that talks about the eight greatest CEOs ever that nobody ever heard of either. And it wasn't Jack Welch, by the way. <laughs> and I want to—I don't want to jump on Jack's grave because I had some real issues with all the fanfare he got. That I never thought he was what he was made out to be. But anyway, I, I think um, we're probably in lockstep on that one too. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's a, there's a, there were a lot of things there, but you know, 
Uh, I'll let them rest in peace. Right. Um, but if, if you look at these CEOs in, the, in this book called The Outsider, I would highly recommend everybody read that book. Uh, it's called The Outsiders. I guess I should be supporting my own book here, right? But uh, the <laughs> Outsiders, the Outsiders talks about these CEOs and what they did to drive, you know, their company the way they drove them, and all eight of them had some very common characteristics that had nothing to do with being the best oil guy or the best engineer or the best technical guy. Okay. And uh, that's usually though what you see in all these different companies. You know, the top guy of an insurance company is an insurance guy. Right. And I keep using the word guy for a reason. Yes. Uh, because the, the the top 30, the top 30 companies, the, the 30 companies that are in the Dow Jones, there's only one of them led by a, a female and that's, uh, that's IBM. So, Right. Yeah, I remember, and I don't know if this stat's still true, but a couple years ago there was a stat floating around that said there are, uh, what was it, there are, are more CEO in the Fortune 500 ranks, there are more CEOs named Dave than there are women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, you're right, and that's one of the things we got to change. And, and you know, uh, man, looking at the clock here, time has flown. Um, I think um, – I'm going to have to have you, if, if you're open for it, I think we gonna have to have you back on here again because I think we've got a lot that we could still unpack for listeners. Hey, I'd love to. Absolutely. Well, so uh, before before we do close out here, uh, again, uh, Flatlined, Why Lean Transformations Fail and What to Do About It is the name of uh, Mark Deluzio's book. Again, highly recommend it. Uh, he, he's made some recommendations there that I'll make sure I get in the show notes as well. Uh, but Mark, before I let you go, um, I want to give you uh, an opportunity to, uh, let my listeners know, cause I have a lot of veteran listeners. Uh, you have another organization, passion project, if you will, uh, called for the brave uh, and brave stands for business reviews and advisors to veteran entrepreneurs. So take a take a few minutes and, and kind of talk about uh, how that came about and, and what your purpose is with that, if you would. Well, uh, yeah. So I'm 63 years old, and uh, I missed Vietnam by one year. Okay, the, the draft, I should say. I missed by one year. But I got to tell you right now, when I was that age, I was scared. I don't want to use the bad word here, but I was I'd scared go to, go, to get drafted and go to Vietnam. And, you know, a lot of people were coming home or not coming home, I should say. Uh, so I missed that, you know, and, and I'm not going to be so insulting to veterans to say, oh, had I do it over again, I would have done it. Bull crap, I didn't do it. And that's the bottom, you know. Right. The bottom line, I didn't do it, okay. And and uh, there are those, though, that did, okay. And uh, like my two sons, okay, my both my boys, uh, college graduates, they left. Uh, they both left CPA firms to join the infantry, and they did not want to. Uh, they did not want to uh, be commissioned officers, even though the army wanted them to. Uh, they're smart kids, and uh, they got their brains from their mother, by the way. But uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, well, she's the smartest woman in the world, Earl. She married me for crying out loud. Come on. <laughs> Um, so, uh, (laughs) so, uh, anyway, um, both boys left CPA firms. Everybody said, wait a minute, you know, you know, wealthy, you know, white guys don't send their kids to 
the infantry, especially when they got college grad, the college graduates living in Glastonbury, Connecticut, which is like you know apple orchards and like the American dream. Right. I said, well, first of all, I didn't send them. Okay, they did it on their own. They did it on their own. It wasn't me. I didn't send them. Okay, um, and I didn't get in their way either. I supported them. Right. But they did, and you know, we brought, we brought our kids up very uh, patriotic, and and uh, and and all. We would dress them up in little army uniforms and go up to Westover Air Force Base to see the guys come back from Iraq in the first war and all that, and that kind of stuff, you know. So, so always respected police officers and fire, and you know, the whole thing. Matter of fact, I took my grandson to a hockey game. He's ten, back before the virus uh, here in in Phoenix, and I took him to a hockey game. And they had Star Wars characters all around the place, and. Uh, <laughs> He says, Poppy, can we go get our picture taken with the Star Wars curse? I said, yeah, but first, we have to get a picture taken over here. And I walked up to two police officers, and I said, and they were surprised. I said, do you guys mind if we take your picture with my grandson? And they, you know, they looked at me like I had three heads. Like, yeah, yeah. They said, yeah, sure, you know. So we took the picture, and I, I told the, the police officers that, you know, we just teach our kids to, Respect the law, respect the military, the whole thing, you know. And they were they were like astonished, you know. Then I told one of the cops, I said, you know, you're not as good looking as Darth Vader, by the way. We're gonna go see Darth Vader now, you know. So he started <laughs> laughing, and uh, so so anyway, but Adam got the point. My grandson got the point that hey, this is this is priority, right? Right. So that's how we wrote, you know, we 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 uh, raised our kids, and and uh, it was nine eleven, and it also was uh, Pat Tillman. Mm-hmm. who really inspired my son Stephen, my younger one, to join, right? And uh, Pat Stephen was a huge uh, uh, sports fan. And when Pat Tillman left the Arizona Cardinals, as a matter of fact, you know, Pat Tillman's uh, brother lives literally a mile from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, and, and I've, I've met him uh, yeah, a couple times. Um, anyway, and he's he's an amazing guy himself. Oh, I'm sure. I'm he's sure. A, a ranger and played minor league ball for Cleveland and – Anyway, um, so 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 Stephen was inspired by him, and he ended up. Long story short, he ended up. Joined, he went to Norwich University, which is a, the oldest military academy in uh, in the country, uh, where ROTC was born and all that. And while he was there, he signed up for the Vermont National Guard, and uh, he volunteered to go over to Iraq, Ramadi, in two thousand six, which was uh, probably the worst place in the world you could have been at the time. Mm. And uh, he luckily got out of there alive. He went over to replace somebody that got killed. And so he came back, and then uh, he kept going to Vermont from Connecticut. He came back and finished his college in Connecticut and kept going to Vermont, 500-mile round trip every 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 month. And I said, Steve, why don't you just uh, you know, join the Connecticut card like your brother Scott just did, right? And he says, no, Dad, you don't understand. Those are my guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think you would understand that being a being a Marine, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, he said, I got, I can't leave my guys, right? So anyway, his unit, his, his division got, got deployed to uh, Afghanistan. And uh, and Scott did at the same time. Matter of fact, Scott and Stephen, even though Scott was in the Connecticut Guard, they had almost exactly the same orders. They were, they were uh, uh, in the mountain division, right? Mm. And, you know, training to fight in the mountains and all that. Right. So they were all deployed. They were both deployed to the northeast part of uh, of, of Afghanistan, right? In the Pac- Matter of fact, my son Scott was on the Pakistani border, and uh, so anyway, Stephen wasn't going to go because his term with the guard would have been up, and he signed up for another year just so he can go, 
You know, right. and again, same reason, right? He says, you know, Dad, you know, I can't let my guys go by themselves, you know. Well, long story short, um, on uh, August 22nd, 2010, Stephen got killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was uh, in a village. There was an, there was an ambush, uh, 120 Taliban and 18 of them. Uh, and believe it or not, we prevailed. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's how good we are. <laughs> yeah. uh, sorry sorry but, for your loss, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no. So he, so he, he, he. Uh, you know, they, he, he received the Bronze Star. Meanwhile, Scott was over there at the same time. They sent Scott home, and uh, after he, after that whole thing, I started, you know, meeting some of Stephen's brothers. Some of them are very good friends. We've been to some of their weddings, and I started seeing the struggles they had coming back. Right, and this whole world. I mean, the silence was deafening when they came back. You know, they went over this thing. They're being shot at every day. Bomb sitting there for an operating base every other day. And, uh, you, you know, and, and so they come back here and, you know, the biggest problem that people have is they got stuck in traffic for 10 minutes and they got the wrong latte at Starbucks, you know. So, you know, it's like, and then they go into corporate life and they see, oh, my God, it's it's a sea of gray. It's not black and white like the Army or the, you know, the military. And, uh, you know, I think you... I just know from what people told me, but you know better than me, Earl, that it, you know the, the 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 military is very black and white, very clear lines of command, mm-hmm. clear responsibilities. You're held accountable for doing whatever you have to do, and you come back and these CEOs that run these companies think that they've got such a well-oiled machine, and all these guys see that come back are and, and gals, by the way, both see a sea of gray, and they, and a lot of them just can't make it in corporate life. And, and by the way, I help them with career development, resume writing. I've got a top guy from Danaher, Bob Piazza, who uh, was the number two guy of in HR from for Danaher, and he has a ten step process for veterans to write a resume. And oh yeah, by the way, step six is when you write the resume. Okay, that's what kind of process it is. Okay, so that's you don't awesome. just start writing a resume. And um, so I said, you know, God's given me a hell of a uh, gift. Right, of experience, of uh, intelligence, of uh, of of having the opportunity to make a crap load of mistakes, right? Which I have done. And why don't I help veterans doing that? I can help a. I can help them with their careers, but I can also help them with the business. Mm. So a lot of these guys come back and they, they want to start businesses, right? And the first thing I try to do is talk them out of it, because <laughs> I want to make sure that they have the DNA to do it. Not everybody can do be an entrepreneur, right? Correct. And I ask questions like, you know, do you want to create wealth or do you want to just make a living? Because there's two different, there's no wrong answer, but they're two different things. If you want to be a plumber, great. If you love to do plumbing, great. If you want to run a plumbing company, totally different game. Right. Okay. It's like a chef that really knows how to cook well, great meals. Now the chef says, I want to run, I want to open up a restaurant. Well, what the heck do you know about running a restaurant? Yeah. And businesses, even though I don't know anything about running a restaurant, I can help you with a business in terms of writing strategic plans asking all the basic questions you ask any business. I don't care what you do, right? Who's your customer? What's your competitive advantage? What's your market? What's your competition? How are you going to price? You know, all that stuff. So uh, sales strategy, you know, and then financial. I have a financial background, so I help them put financials together. So I'll put a whole strategic plan together, and I'm working with a number of veterans right now doing that, and uh, and help them set up their business in addition to helping the guys and gals that want career advice. So so that's what Brave does. Uh, I've been doing it now for, I don't know, two, two and a half years. 
and I've, I've helped a bunch of people so far, and I've got a team to go to my web, website, which is forthebrave.org, the number four, thebrave.org, uh, okay? And, uh, mm-hmm. and you can see, and there's a survey on there. If anybody wants help, they can go on there, fill out the survey, and that comes right to me, and that gets us started, at least with the conversation, you know? So, uh, so that's it. Uh, that's a real long story to your simple oh. question but uh uh yeah i'm a gold star father and uh, matter of fact we uh my wife and i and my son scott actually went down to meet the president last year so he invited us to the white house so oh, outstanding well thank yep. you uh for sharing uh your story and, and thank you for doing that uh, i'll also have uh the links to uh to for the brave on there so so uh, listeners can check that out so uh you know but thank you for for taking up that service and uh, you know, I mean, that's the thing is, is, uh, I appreciate your respect for the military. I know it means something deep, uh, held to you. Uh, but you know, so one thing I like to try to get people to understand, even if you didn't serve, especially with what you're doing, you, you may not have wore the uniform, but by volunteering and, and taking the time to help the men and women who have, you are doing a great service to the country as well. So please be as proud of that as you possibly can be. Well, there's no way I can ever repay them. You know, I mean, when I wake up in the morning, bombs aren't going off in front of my house. You know, well, once in a while you might have a stray guy coming in or not but <laughs> <laughs> with today's protest and all that. But right. uh, but, but I, I am a believer in the Second Amendment, so I think I'm okay in that department. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I can't pay I can't pay the men and women enough to uh, to for what they've done. And by the way, I'm not only talking about combat, I'm talking about anybody who served right. in any capacity. It doesn't matter to me. And uh, and by the way, I also open this up to uh, first responders and, and, you know, firefighters and police and uh, EMTs and people like that because I believe they're heroes too because every time they go out, they're putting their life on the line for us, right? And, yes. uh, you know, a policeman, you know, let's say a, a husband is a, is a cop and or a woman or... You know, and when he leaves every morning, his wife doesn't know if he's coming back. You yep. know, and I don't know how you live like that. You know, I, I that that's, you know, like we were military families, and every time the doorbell rang, we scared the hell out of us. You know, well, one time it did ring, and it wasn't good. But uh, the only thing I didn't know was which son got killed. But uh, uh, so people don't understand sacrifice, and they don't understand. I've been to 45 countries. I've been all around the world. And I've seen what real poverty is, okay? Right. Uh, when people say the upper 1%, do you know if the upper 1% is $32,000 a year? Uh, yes. Most it, everybody it, in America, even if you're on poverty, you're in the upper 1%. Okay? Staggering, isn't it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and and I, I, I've seen real poverty, okay? And uh, what we call poverty here is a joke. And right. by the way, I'm not trying to, you know, we should be better than that in this country, okay, than what we call poverty here, but put, you got to put things in perspective. And, uh, you know, so I, I do not take for granted one bit our freedom uh, and what and why we have the freedom. And it's for people like you and your brothers and sisters that put the uniform on and did what you did. So thank you for that. And, and, and thank you for being on the show. Uh, I know for the listeners, this one has has ran a little bit long, but I, I think you'll agree that it was definitely worth it. And, uh, you know, Mark, uh, like I said before, I'm definitely uh, 
we're going to set up. I want to have you back on again because there's a lot of stuff that we, as much as we talked about, there's a lot of stuff that we didn't even touch on that, that I think the listeners are going to get some value out of. And, and I want to make that happen. And uh, so, again, just, just thank you very much for your time and being uh, a guest on the show. Well, I'll tell you what. Next time, just reserve five minutes. I'll tell you everything I know. <laughs> There you go. All right. No outstanding. And, and again, listeners, uh, I'll have all of Mark's information for his book, uh, the books he suggested, uh, the website for The Brave. Uh, I'll have all that stuff in the show notes. Um, you know, thank you for, for listening to the show and supporting the show. I uh, really appreciate you all sharing it out and, and uh, leaving the, the reviews and the ratings. really helps us get visibility and gain traction on all the various platforms. So thank you very much for that. Um, if you have any feedback for me, guest ideas, uh, content, uh, whatever it is to help make the show better, I'm doing this for y'all, uh, hit me with it at burden.command at gmail.com. With that, I just want to thank everyone for, for their time and, and uh, uh, listening and, and enjoying the conversation, hopefully, that, that Mark and I had. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Hath Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. Electric acid.